0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a
1: short message about our ministry.
0: Hey, I'm here with uh, Brett Powell, and uh, this evening we're going to discuss, and it is evening here, and I sure think, Brett, that he's willing to, to do this. Uh, we're in, in the evening late. Uh, after a hard day at work, I presume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, there is a a kind of large disaffected group within the church. I mean, that's obvious. And maybe it's the political atmosphere uh, that uh, Brett has been listening a lot to various podcasts, and that there is almost a community forming uh, among those who have uh, kind of left a traditional. Uh, evangelical Christianity or Orthodox Christianity and that uh, and it's quite understandable in the political atmosphere and various things and so we're going to talk about that a little bit and and about uh, some of Brett's observations in regard to this so Brett uh, give it set the scene a little bit as to what you see happening
1: well thanks for this discussion Paul first of all it's a pleasure. And uh, so I've been listening to the Liturgist podcast for uh, a couple years now. They've been around since probably about 2014, and they started as a duo of gentlemen, uh, Mike McHarg, who's called Science Mike, and Michael Gunger, who was a a former evangelical worship leader. And uh, what they do in this podcast is just discuss the sort of hot-button issues, things that are socially relevant. Uh, particularly as it all relates to the church, so they'll talk about things like um, just your typical evangelical uh, hot button issues like evolution or pro life, uh, racism, mm-hmm. you know, problems with social media, and uh, in particular, the podcast we're going to talk about tonight. One of them was uh, concerning gender. And they, they like to tackle these different topics just by letting guests tell their story. So it's a neat podcast because you have people in certain situations facing certain social problems that that get, you get to put not really a face to the to the problem, but at least a voice to the problem. So, you know, for that end of it, it's, it's pretty neat. And basically what they do is um, they sort of just deconstruct their worldview. Um, that's the angle of the entire podcast.
0: Deconstruct uh, the worldview of of whom?
1: So, for instance, one of the hosts, Science Mike, um, say he was a Southern Baptist, um, you know, born and raised, and he'll go through a lot of different issues, so they'll pick a topic and he'll explain how he was raised, why he believed what he believed, you know, and your normal for normal evangelical reasons i guess you could say uh, on any particular issue and he'll start explaining where difficulties in his life began to come up so maybe it was biblical interpretation or just they call him science mike for a reason he's not like a scientist or anything but he's very well versed on on science and it was just a love of his from childhood so where issues came up say with the creation story or anything else it just became an issue for him, and just any topic that they're discussing, you know, that's how they'll go through it, and they'll explain how they've, uh, how they if you try to discuss the issue empirically, or uh, mm-hmm. say people of authority in the church. That's another issue that comes up a lot, where people have abused power.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I listened to uh, I listened to a podcast that, uh, uh, that today my daughter actually listens and she shared one that that just uh, it was quite a long podcast uh, on people who had been traumatized mm-hmm. and and of course it seems like you know just terrible story uh, and, and it seems like the 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 people hosting the podcast have in some way been traumatized in either their upbringing or their church life, that they've been spiritually traumatized. Mm -hmm. Um, And for some of them, uh, it has meant a departure, uh, maybe a period of atheism, maybe. So it seems like uh, it is just a a community of people. And again, I think that it is inevitable in the atmosphere that we're in and the, the nature of the church as it exists uh, that there that there is this disaffected group of people.
1: Yeah, and that's something that's really neat about podcasts is that it it's it's opened up a space, and, and I'm talking politics or anything. It's opened up a space where people can sort of circumvent the established ways. So, you know, like politically, you don't have to watch six minutes of three people yelling at each other. You know, to find mm-hmm. you can actually. You can actually turn a podcast on it and listen to a particularly to- a particular topic for an hour, two hours, three hours. Some of these podcasts, and so with the liturgists, you know that's what this has given them a chance to do with um, with some. And they what they what they have called their group or uh, they've sort of dubbed themselves the Church in Exile. So uh, people that are are leaving the evangelical church, and they don't really. What they really want to do is open up the space of no judgment, no shame. Any question that you would never ask your pastor is uh, is game, basically. So it's 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 good in that way that that people are getting to to open up and, and okay. do podcasts for that.
0: And I, you know, I've always maintained that uh, that there is a religion that is sick. And there is a Christianity that can aggravate your own problem and predicament. And that seems to be, you know, that they're describing a faith that is literally, I mean, quite literally, they've been traumatized. They've been sickened. And not that they've all rejected the faith. That sounds like many of them have. I I don't think there's any that have stuck with fundamentalism or Uh, but at least then uh, I I think it's a a recommendation that uh, we could embrace that probably if your religion is in some way aggravating your predicament or problem first of all there's something wrong with your religion and second of all you should probably depart from it
1: yeah and I think that that's exactly what they're trying to tackle here so yeah Um, the only issue comes is again this is just a couple guys sort of broadcasting you know their doubt and and making known that they're struggling with these issues and suddenly it's just a couple guys that are pondering the meaning of life or the meaning of god or what have you and large masses of people are suddenly listening to them and uh you know these guys may be teetering on on the edge of saying, Well, what keeps us from being nihilists, you know? Uh-huh. And people are taking this in. So I mean it it can kinda get to a point where it's it's gotten real, I think, for them and they realize that they have a large responsibility and they're now they're receiving tens of thousands of dollars in and donor support. So I mean and they've been able to open up a network, so this isn't the only podcast. They've got like three other podcasts now, um, mm-hmm. where they, they basically do the same thing in a way that maybe suits somebody else. You know, yeah, I
0: think them. the I think they're tapping into you know the whole idea of nihilism, or uh, that uh, the way that I've always understood nihilism that in fact uh, it may be a way station. Uh, uh, maybe a necessary way station on the way to belief. That is that, uh, and, and almost something that arises in conjunction with Christianity. I mean, I think modern atheism, modern nihilism, as we have it, is actually a spinoff, a byproduct of a rejected Christianity or a, or of a Christian worldview in an ironic sense in that it, there is this uh, creation from nothing, uh, well, the next step is to say, yeah, no God, just creation from nothing, uh, or just that there is nothingness in, and in some way an embrace of that. I've never seen that as an entirely negative thing unless someone just is fascinated with the abyss of nothingness and is unwilling. You know, I think that then it becomes problematic uh, if you're unwilling to budge from that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, McCarg and Gunger, I mean, you can tell, you can differentiate these two. You know, I think one of them is, is sort of enamored with the mystery of it. They both really are, but, and, and they both claim to have these sort of mystical experiences too. So that kind of complicates it for them I'm sure because I think that they're being honest about it they seem to be very honest straightforward people but it sort of complicates it because they're they're trying to be so empirically minded about things but at the same time they realize that there's things that they can't explain and so it's <laughs> it just kind of gets it gets strange from time to time but I think countering social issues kind of keeps them grounded or at least it gives them something to work from and uh even if they don't know why something's wrong, I think that they're they're trying to grapple with the morality of of, of especially of how things are going in in the political atmosphere.
0: And, and maybe that's I mean, if if nothing else in this present situation, I mean, just you know, that the, it just gets worse and worse day by day. That I, I always think that uh, if. the state of the church wasn't bad enough, and then the church an evangelicalism and fundamentalism that's tied into a clearly evil political system, uh, that there should be then a a disaffection. If there's not, there's something wrong. And so this group of people are, and, and, and of course, in a sense, what I've listened, it's much more personal than that. It's just people that have been Uh, Abused, abused in sexually, they've been abused spiritually. uh, That uh, there are people that are, and and this is the little community that we have here. We're really a community of people that are disaffected, that uh, that were abused. You know that so many of of us here, that uh, that people in a kind of Pharisaical fundamentalism uh, does just continually throw up. Uh, uh, continual pain and and hurt, and so I, 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 if nothing else, I would hope that there is a uh, a more healthy form of Christianity and embrace of a of a healthier form of Christianity uh, by people. But your point is that may not be what's happening in this particular podcast.
1: Yeah, so a few months ago, they released a podcast called "God Our Mother." And, uh, of course, in the general course of things as they go through deconstructing things, um, they're deconstructing the masculine metaphors for God for reasons that people see God our Father as sort of a, a harmful metaphor or the limitations that God our Father might present as opposed to a more inclusive notion of God. And so, what they're trying to do in this particular podcast, God, our Mother, is construct or at least explore the incorporation of the feminine notion into conceptions of God. And and really, the main premise is that you know because certain individuals and certain identity groups can't relate to God as Father, either because of dysfunctional relationships or in their personal lives, uh, just or a general modern. You know, a general modern distaste for all things patriarchal. Um, maybe God as mother presents a solution to the problem, mm-hmm. and they give case studies, you know, which are presented to indicate how how in our culture we view mothers and fathers differently. You know, so really it comes down to how do we project upon God uh, if the fatherly notion is sort of a, a, a more cruel notion than in our culture in our society than say the more motherly notion then, then they're all for that because they really just see it as a path to a, a healthy a healthiness of body and mind
0: so and of course I would uh, you know uh, I would imagine that they tap in even in scripture that there is an image of the feminine that there is God gathering her chicks you know under, uh, the, the mother image is there and so I don't think that that one would deny that there is this, obviously, male-female is, is an anthropocentric kind of understanding. Uh, but your point, I think, where you're wanting to go with this, is not simply that there may be an inherent problem with the feminine, or but, but your thought is that this historically uh, has created problems in the form of Gnosticism.
1: Yeah, so the interesting thing about the podcast is that it really isn't a biblical discussion, you know, saying, hey, we've had these, you know, this is a part of the long ancient Hebrew tradition, say, or it's even in the New Testament, you know, where even Jesus is called Sophia, which is a feminine uh, word for wisdom. You no, know, that's not really the route that they take. So they kind of take the route of building a, uh, I find it to be just a, a particular narrative, and, and, it, and it raised some uh, it raised some alarms for me as somebody who had read Irenaeus, Saint Irenaeus, the, the second century defender of Christianity, uh, who wrote the who wrote against heresies, and uh, most of that work is is uh, dedicated to second century Gnosticism, and so uh, Irenaeus being the bishop. Uh, he was called bishop later i think but the, at least a cleric of some sort in the, in Gaul in second century um, he he laid out in a very complex work all these different variations of Gnosticism of the second century and, and if there was one thing about Gnosticism it, it was very diverse i mean I, i'm sh- i'm sure it was just as diverse as there were different cultures in the Roman Empire i mean you have this broad expansive empire and all these little Mm. variations of Gnosticism, I think, that were taking root and Irenaeus went through uh, in very detailed form and sort of shows all these different forms of it, but what I found reading Irenaeus is that there's a lot of themes that come up very regularly, so there's sort of a consistent narrative in Gnosticism and that's sort of what I wanted to relate back to the liturgists, so if I could, I, I just wanted to uh, hit on each one of those consistent themes.
0: Absolutely, let's do it.
1: So, of course, there's in Gnosticism of second century, there is this great desire to know what can't be known. And uh, Gnosis, of course, means knowledge. Uh, there was a mystic element in Gnosticism. Um, in other words, they weren't going by... Our traditional notions of revelation. Uh, it was almost sort of like uh, there was a cult of personality, sort of thing going on. Uh, I wouldn't know. I don't really know that Gnosticism was necessarily an, an esoteric type of religion. I'm sure certain strands of it were, but there was at least this idea that that knowledge could be gained from uh, from sort of some identification with a particular group, and so. Was this desire to have knowledge that nobody else knew. There was that. There was also the major theme of just despising the flesh, despising the visible world, uh, and opting for a Platonic dualistic view of the world, where you know form is opposing substance and flesh opposes the mind or material opposes the spiritual, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, usually usually this stuff is discussed philosophically, but I think with the Gnostics, I'm given to believe that, that a lot of this discussion, just reading through Irenaeus, seems to stem from just social frustration. I mean, what other reason do you have uh, to carry on Platonic ideas like that that late uh, into that many centuries later, I think, other than just maybe that they weren't happy with their circumstances or... Uh, maybe you know there was a lot of oppression going on in the Roman Empire, so uh, I, I have a hunch, anyways, that that a lot of the their ideas were born out of social frustration. Mm-hmm. So they really had this; di- they were really disoriented in relation to the structure of, of being. I think, and uh, not only that, there was also this tendency to resolve the problem of God, and I, that that happens a lot in Christianity too. Uh, particularly, problems that were posed in scripture, in which God is sort of presented as this morally compromised individual. So, I mean, think of the, the flood story, for instance. Um, you know, I think the Gnostics were trying to produce some sort of a theodicy at some level, some sort of argument for for goodness. Uh, but if God is in the scriptures doing morally questionable things in their mind, then that must have been a lesser God. And so in Gnostic belief, Yahweh was actually an evil demigod. Um, he was, mm. Yahweh was not the supreme creator God. And so you ask, okay, well then, if he's, a, if Yahweh was the demigod, then who was above Yahweh? Well, the Gnostics were obsessed with hierarchies. And they produced these hierarchies that were sort of like uh, ancient Greek Greek theogonies, you know, where you had Zeus on top and, and Aphrodite's on bottom or something like that, you know. They produced these hierarchies, but they weren't they weren't hierarchies of gods, they were hierarchies of conceptualizations, so forms and ideas. So you had like mind and truth, and word, and life, and church, and mankind—all of these different conceptualizations, all together, uh, were established in this hierarchy, and that was their ultimate description of God. So, and these ideas were called eons. Mm-hmm. These eons were arranged. Uh, in pair-bonded groups, so in, in Greek language, of course, you've got masculine and feminine, and that kind of neatly helped to uh, to pair-bond each one of these eons. So, you know, you had this conceptualization of word, which was masculine, pair-bonded with the conceptualization of life, which was zoe, which was feminine. Okay, so out of all of that, really, I just would just say that they really had this strange obsession with uh, with hierarchy and what you really end up getting in, in your conceptualization of God is uh, is God androgynous? is God masculine? is God feminine? well they kind of just like to throw it all together uh, in, in all of these different ideas and uh, so rather than God being explained by their process of gnosis what you find is God just being complexified and just made, being made more ambiguous, even more difficult to understand. So, um, just a couple more things. So,
0: Go ahead. And let's pause there, so that with I mean, clearly, you know, in the the by the time you have a full blown Gnosticism, uh, it's not as if the 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 New Testament is not addressing a kind of proto Gnosticism. Yeah. Uh, that. Even by you know the writing of perhaps the gospel, the epistles of John, that he's encountering and, uh, a, a kind of dualism that that uh, we recognize as what you're describing as a full blown you know second century Gnosticism. But it must have. And my, my thought with Gnosticism is that I, I you know whether it was what was the state of, the, of of Gnosticism in the first century. Well, I don't know, but. It seems to me that Gnosticism is the prototypical failure of, in other words, what Christianity is always doing. What is always being comb- combated is a, not an, a Gnostic orientation of flesh, spirit, you know, heaven, earth, uh, the, some sort of binary or duality that is a kind of stepping, you know, a stepladder of ascending and that's what you're describing i think that's not just a particular religious uh, understanding i think in some way that describes human religion that it is characteristically uh, a dualism and it is uh, in inevitably uh, you know uh, a a kind of hierarchical uh, not gnosis or you know an a secret knowledge that only the elite are inducted into. And that uh in turn very often it is connected to a mysticism. And and I think this is what you get, unfortunately, in a lot of discussion and I, I uh of mysticism, is there is just a presumption that all mysticisms are the same. Uh and and I just think that's a profound mistake that, well we might talk about God as a as a mystery but uh, the, the mystery and the, you know, there's a whole idea here that in some way we're all having the encounter uh, with the same, you know, phenomenon or that in some way it's a sui generis shared uh, uh, experience. And I just think that's not true. I just, that's not my understanding of what human beings are or, or of the way that religion functions. So I think there's, in, in a Gnostic understanding, I think it's easy to get a a large, you know, a, a shared understanding because it is sort of the natural fallback position of a lot of human, just the way human thought functions and human religion is reflected in that.
1: Yeah, it's sort of like a religious fallback, or the fallback for a religious psychology whenever it's just, I would just say disoriented with maybe... Maybe on one level, you could give it the benefit of the doubt and say it's disoriented with um, the problems of life, but then on another level, it could be just a disorientation with with power and and uh, so definitely I, I see how it can take different forms and just sort of be a fallback for mm-hmm. battery. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you took it. Yeah, you took us through two of your things. Now, go go ahead, take us through the other characteristics.
1: The other one, just very briefly, um, because they're pretty specific, they they should be mentioned um, before we begin discussing the podcast. uh, The role of Sophia, wisdom, in second century Gnostic myth was that wisdom was this sort of Sophia was this sort of strange protagonist, like a tragic hero. Okay, so Sophia was an eon; she was part of the conceptualization of God, but but somehow, or through some means, and it, it all varies throughout the different myths. But somehow, she ends up in this sort of disorientation with the rest of the the uh, the fullness, the full conception of God. And what she ends up doing is. Basically giving birth to Yahweh or the, the evil demigod and so Because of this bad relationship between her and the rest of the fullness of God, you know We have a world that's full of evil a world of chaos and uh, And she sort of becomes a tragic hero that has to put it all back together and She tries to do that through humanity uh, It gets really fuzzy on a lot of these myths <laughs> I have read some of the, some of the actual nag uh, the text. They're difficult to understand, but anyways, what they would do from there, and this is sort of the last point, is just sort of alter the biblical stories, and so when you come into the Garden of Eden story, for instance, of course we all know how the traditional fall of, of humanity goes in chapter 3 of Genesis. And they would take a story like that and they would alter it so that wisdom was, for instance, the snake in the garden. And again, wisdom Sophia is the protagonist here, so the snake is suddenly the good guy in the story for instance so and they, they would alter the, they altered the flood stories. And interestingly enough, you know several years ago, there was this big debate about why shouldn't we be accepting other? You know, these Gnostic Gospels and so on and so forth into the the Christian canon. And I think when you see that they really had a a real problem relaying the stories accurately, even stories that were as old as, say, the Genesis stories, you know, it kind of casts a big shadow of suspicion over how well they were able to relate stories about Jesus. So that was something that I thought was interesting. So, anyways, as as diverse as Gnosticism was, um, those were all pretty. Pretty fairly consistent themes throughout.
0: Let's say them again. The 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 first one is a kind of gnosis or a secret knowledge that, by belonging to the group by a particular experience, that you'll be inducted into the knowing. Is that Our right? Mysticism, yes. And, and then the second one
1: was a despising of the flesh, the uh, which I I kind of took as just being a. Uh, uh, born out of social frustration, but I'm sure there was just a uh, sort of a philosophical element to that too. Um,
0: there was, and of course, yeah, we're warned, you know, that that sort of understanding, uh, uh, a kind of Manichaeanism or uh, you know, the uh, August Augustine, or uh, that that just seems to be characteristic, and it's it just mitigates against. Christianity in which you have God becoming flesh I mean that was that was already uh, I I suppose uh, 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 a kind of uh, you know insult to I mean that's the problem with you know the the Gospel of John it's is he echoing Greek thought well he may be echoing it but he's also uh, uh, disagreed with it is he echoing uh, you know the targums and their depiction of uh, memra or Logos oh he probably is but he's also in some way in, in, uh, insulting that understanding too that is that God become flesh uh, is it just stands over and against a kind of Gnostic tendency that I think is always there yeah
1: yeah. That, that, that was the real difficulty and you know of course in our podcast that we'll be talking about in just a second Denial of Jesus coming in flesh isn't, you know, brought up. But obviously, this is sort of a, a point of contention. Where if you start exhibiting just this this bad relationship with the physical world, or however you want to describe it, then then there are other things that come out of it. And so, uh, the other the other tendencies of Gnosticism I had listed was um, oh, just trying to produce some a theodicy at some level, um, trying to explain God and explain where goodness comes from, because it doesn't come from the demigod. Uh, they had the obsession with hierarchies.
0: Uh-huh. Um, and again, that just seems uh, that, I mean, in a sense, that that is evangelical Christianity. And I always, I think this with the people that, imagine that they've passed beyond evangelicalism to something else. But unfortunately, I'm afraid they've retained, in other words, the thing that they imagine is a departure, and this is this is one of them, is, is precisely the, the thing that is characteristic of a fundamentalism or an evangelicalism, that in some way you're going to, that evil is not, you know, in some way really evil, that you're going to explain it or you're going to uh, uh, describe the necessity of evil. That is just Eastern religion, but that is, of course, and throughout, you know, as you're describing this, the person that I'm thinking of is Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, that Hegel's dialectic, you know, Hegel's, Hegel's reading of Genesis 3 sounds just like a Gnostic reading. And in that understanding, uh, Hegel would say, oh, well, we need the fall of man because the fall of man is not actually the fall of man. That is the self-discovery of man in which, you know, if prior to coming to the knowledge of good and evil, uh, it must have been the infancy of humankind so that they were they were incapable of thought if they were incapable of posing these binaries, good and evil. And of course, that's the Hegelian dialectic. It's always this this some sort of dialectic between uh, two things. Ultimately, something and nothing. The slave master. And so, in in a sense, Hegel is a summation of the possibilities of human thought. Which, by the way, has nothing. You know, was Hegel a a orthodox Lutheran? Oh, I don't know. He he may have thought of himself that way, but we've we've uh, you know we've departed from any any sort of orthodox christianity at at this point and so and so in a sense i think we can kind of summarize and we can we can expect to see where where uh, things are going but anyway so the the next thing was the you you mentioned the hierarchy and then sophia what were what did you say about Sophia? that
1: sophia was just sort of a, a protagonist a, a tragic hero uh, in some sense she was responsible for the chaos of the world, but but at the same time she was uh, sort of um, working to resolve things. And so, it, and she was removed from the transcendent conceptualization of God called the fullness of God, and and out of her came the physical realm, which was just enveloped with evil. So,
0: and other. And Sophia is, is feminine, and I think that's important. And, of course, that is the Gnostic reading of John, is they're going to take the Logos, which is masculine, and they're just going to say, well, Logos is actually Sophia. It's actually wisdom. Well, that that is going to, to be a significant move in terms of Christology, in terms of our understanding of creation. Uh, in a sense, it may seem like a harmless move, but I assume that's where you're taking us is that this seemingly innocent, that we might agree that, you know, that obviously there is a feminine side to God but historically then what you're describing for us is that this can be uh, highly problematic.
1: Yeah, so coming back to the podcast so where I had noticed several of these Gnostic themes, I think just inadvertently and unintentionally sort of resurrecting and they were very it's just so strange because I don't think that they're educated in second century church history or anything like that, uh, at least to any degree that I've ever seen or, or, uh, or I've heard. And these just very specific themes came back up again. And so, uh, in the podcast, just from the very beginning, the shadow of the, just the inability to know God looms. very very large which is why they're breaking down the patriarchal masculine notion of god our father so you know how do we really know anything about god you know let alone why should we abide by this cultural construct in which god is a man especially when uh, we're in a culture where patriarchy has done so much damage and and cause you know inflicted uh, a pain upon on so many people so if we don't know anything about God, at the very least, we should at least start changing up our metaphor. So, you know, instead of coming at it from the biblical, you know, well, we've always spoken about God in, in feminine ways, they come at it from the angle of, well, we don't know anything about God, so let's just fix it.
0: <laughs> it's like they're starting from scratch. They're saying, well, uh, let's. Here's what we know. Uh, and and so there is a kind of departure from the notion that in Christ there is a final and full revelation of God, but there is a presumption that, in other words, that that they seem to be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That they've uh, they're unhappy with a traditional evangelicalism, and so their turn then, as you're describing it, is to well let's let's see if we can just kind of our way in the dark. Yeah, and
1: revelation and tradition sort of become, like, bad words. You know, that's not really where they want to go with with any issues. So, um, they go on to explain how deeply patriarchy is embedded in religious traditions. and, And the way they do that, and this was, again, very strange, is by talking about how the original creation story, or more specifically Genesis 3, was actually written as a, written with a bent against feminism, so that everybody knew that the snake in the garden represented feminism. So traditional Christianity has always known that the snake in the garden was, was femininity. And they made femininity into a bad guy, you know, or into a, uh, an antagonist, I should say. So in traditional Christianity. Which just... Always been That just
0: doesn't seem... Yeah, I've never, I've never, I mean, to imagine, to posit that that's some shared understanding seems implausible.
1: Well, that's just it. It was one of the hosts that brought it up, and the other host had never even heard of it. So it kind of... (laughs) it just, it's a very thing to say. And it was not something that I had ever heard except... uh, you know in the gnostic idea and in the gnostic idea i think again sophia is sort of a protagonist and but they were saying that traditional christianity has always held the same belief about the snake the serpent in the garden but that in our case or in traditional christianity's instance that serpent was an antagonist so so it goes on so you have this problem with gnosis now you have a problem with The traditions have always been corrupted. They've always had this bend against femininity. And uh, you have this disproportionate relationship with the feminine Sophia. And uh, then there's this exploration of the problems of, of transcendence and masculinity, which is exhibited in patriarchy. And so the only solution to the problems of patriarchy is going to be this sort of hands in the dirt, substantial, uh, imminent brand of femininity. And as the podcast goes on, they actually go through this whole process of, uh, the liturgists are also musicians. So, and they produce some really nice music throughout the podcast and they always do. They, they do a top notch job with other podcasts and, but they go through the, the, these traditional Christian hymns where, um, where we're singing about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they begin gender swapping these songs, which isn't really a big deal. It just sort of, it to me in my mind, it sort of related back to the Gnostic hierarchies, where they were, where they were doing a lot of gender swapping in the descriptions of God. In um, one mm-hmm. one particular instance, I'll just say this: in the Gnostic hierarchy, at the top of the Gnostic hierarchy was this androgynous what they called the virgin spirit Okay, that was at the top of the hierarchy and so in order for us to know anything about the virgin spirit there had to be some sort of emanation and so the whole hierarchy is built on this process of emanations so you have masculinity and femininity pair bonded and with each feminine with each feminine emanation God becomes just a little bit more knowable so masculinity is at the top and it becomes for them a term of transcendence and femininity uh, brings that transcendence down to through a process of imminence and, and emanation so that we can know more about God and so I feel like in this instance masculinity and femininity even though we may often think of them in those terms of transcendence and eminence and I think I think you will find that in scripture. I think that for the podcast or for the host here, you know, and for the Gnostics too, I think these things just become like empty categories that are, that need to have meaning mm-hmm. into them. And so, yeah. I know often you talk about taking something that's an empty concept and reifying it, and I think that that's what happens here with femininity and masculinity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the the, the move is – is it, it's kind of odd the way that, that gender will always work its way in, into this. And, of course, what you're losing, inevitably, is uh, gender as it – in other words, that, to talk about Sophia or to in some way uh, reify one of these, you know, f- reify feminism and say, oh, God is feminine, he's not masculine – Well, actually what you're doing is you're taking gender and making it something other than a created category, Uh, that that's the case with all of these dualisms or these binaries that once you have creation, creation ex nihilo, well, all of these things take their proper place so that it's in the beginning was, you know, uh, male and female, and that it's only as a plurality of persons, uh, as gendered you know that god's image is born that is it's through the two it's not through we often read that as if it's singular and so what you're going to inevitably get either in patriarchy or in uh, a kind of privileging of the feminine is uh, a a turn a kind of cosmos that then the way in which john uses the term when john says cosmos he means a, a closed system. And I think that's what you have with a, a feminine Gnostic understanding. They're wanting to describe all of reality in terms of what, as Christians, we would imagine is simply a created reality. So it's kind of ironic that they're wanting to you know, kind of climb the stairway to heaven uh, in and through uh, terms that... Are themselves inadequate uh, to to get us beyond a a imminence, and of course that that's the so that you uh, in a good materialist sense, you know, a, a straightforward atheistic Marxist materialist, it's not just God that you lose, but in a sense it's the world that you lose too, because there is this despising of the flesh, there is this you know refusal of the world, so. I think that that's. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Finish your talk. I think that's what's at stake in in uh, and I'm you know again. I think it, uh, clearly there is a problem with patriarchy. There's a problem with the whole picture of the treatment of women of femininity in a lot of of uh, evangelicalism fundamentalism. As I understand that, and I understand there has been abuse. But ironically, I think that this becomes even, uh, uh, in other words, it's the typical thing. You you upset the binary or you upset the dualism, uh, you know, instead of the, uh, uh, you know, the master-slave relationship is not solved by making the slave the master. It's just a perpetuation of the problem.
1: Yeah. And, and it's interesting you brought up John. Um, because in the podcast there's this twice as a matter of fact there's this really really strong repudiation um, of the Gospel of John because the Gospel of John uses the God our Father so much and you know that's why that the blog you you put out the other day was so illuminating for how much femininity plays into the Gospel of John and so that you can see femininity. At, Having this soteriological role, uh, every bit or more as much as masculinity does, you know. And if we put aside the God the Father thing for a moment and look at the rest of the gospel, and I, I, I thought that you did a great job illuminating that.
0: Yeah, that, that uh, uh, the the picture there, if I, people that have not read it, is that what you have in John is a privileging of the feminine throughout, you know, that the opening scene at Cana of Galilee is with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the language that Jesus uses there is woman, you know, Eve, uh, is this, it's the same word in, in, in Hebrew. Um, and then at the end of the gospel, the same, you know, a, a very similar scene with his mother, once again, very similar language. They're going to talk about the hour or, you know, the hour throughout the gospel has been the approaching cross, the passion. And so the, if you read the scenes, the various scenes in John, through that lens, through a kind of understanding, well, what is happening at Cana of Galilee is a proto- proleptic wedding feast of the Lamb. That's the way that, you know, uh, exegetes have often seen that or theologians have seen it. And so then, when you begin to encounter women in the gospel, uh, the woman at Samaria, well, she her experience is laid side by side with that of Nicodemus. And of course, Nicodemus, the ruler of the educated one, the the elite, uh, he comes out looking pretty, pretty bad uh, in comparison to this Samaritan woman who's been married five times and is of questionable character. That occurrence, which is duplicated in the scene with Mary in her foot washing and the washing of the disciples' feet, it's duplicated in Martha's good confession. uh, It's duplicated, I think. In other words, there's this the privileging of the women. Get it right. The women are the ones who, in some way, escape what. Paul might be thinking of as a masculine understanding of the law. in other words, I can there is this role you know Paul is going to use masculine feminine uh, but not in the not in a gnostic sense, but he's going to there it the male and female you know in Romans seven one to six, he's describing being joined to Christ. And that in some way the feminine, the role of the feminine, uh, is the bride of Christ, that that's the role that we take. It's not that there's a privileging of the feminine, because Christ, of course, is the bridegroom. But the way in which we come to Christ is then, I think, in putting off many of the prototypical masculine characteristics, uh, specifically, you know, in John uh Nicodemus is a man of the law. He's a man, you know, well that's there they've all got hang ups with the law. And so that orientation and and what lies behind all of this is the psychoanalytic understanding of Jacques Lacan and uh Slavoy Zizek, both by the way, atheistic, you know, uh Zizek is this to but he's reading Paul and saying, look, here, Paul is doing what Lacan is doing. There is, in fact, a privileging of the feminine, not a reifying of the feminine, not a doing away with the masculine, but an understanding of how it is that we, uh, you know, that, that uh, this is provides us access uh, to God, in a sense. So I think that's a very different thing than to picture God as... Mother, at least in the way that a Gnostic would.
1: Yeah, so that that kind of moves us towards resolution here, because I mean, I think that if I think that if a group like the Liturgists actually went to the went to Scripture or went to Christian tradition, I think that they would have they would not have been so cynical, probably in in their view of of. The roles of masculinity and femininity, and uh, soteriology, or, or what have you. However, they were approaching it. I think that they they might have had a, a different approach to their podcast. I mean, still, by all means, discuss the issues and the problems that have. You know, they're they're the ones that are out there meeting people and saying, you know, mm-hmm. hearing people's stories, and, and so they know firsthand the issues. But I think that they could dig deeper on the resolution side. And and maybe they just like to keep the atmosphere, you know, kind of blank on a lot of things. But but I think that all of us are looking for resolution. And, and so, you know, one of the major flaws, as I see it, is this tendency just to view gender, especially as it's applied to God, just as like a strictly cultural metaphor. Okay, so... You know, while God is occasionally descri- described in uh, maternal ways, so he's also referred to uh, in paternal ways as Father. And, of course, that would have been a much more acceptable metaphor in a patriarchal culture. But I think that the, the metaphor of God our Father kind of meets its limit in the Incarnation. Um, it's it's exhausted as far as just being strictly a cultural metaphor because i think that in the incarnation god our father stops just being a a a description or an illusion that best fits like the psychology of the culture of the people of that time of that place i think it moves beyond metaphor into something else when we get to the incarnation uh you want to call it a story or event okay so you know, what sparked a lot of this discussion in my mind is just thinking of Christ as Savior, but also thinking, why specifically a male? Okay? Was there specifically a reason? Why specifically is it about the relationship with God the Father, you know? Um, so other than a lot of the confusion that's going along with gender in the culture right now, you know, these questions sort of come to my mind. And I kind of came up with a, a resolution for why we, or at least a couple considerations for why we should take uh, the masculinity of Jesus and also the masculine idea of God our Father, you know, more seriously, at least to take it in consideration. So if I can run through a couple of these, a couple of these, uh, yeah, you know, and why we should take that masculinity seriously... In the context of the incarnation, uh, and they're they're pretty they're pretty straightforward. But first of all, it's just Jesus incarnation has been designated as the Word of God. Okay, it's that sole Word of God that John is so careful to articulate at the beginning of his gospel. And here we find reasons, you know, not only for considering the masculinity of Jesus, but also just the entire gender dynamic. That is taking place and occurring throughout the Gospels. You know, think about the incarnation and think about it. What book ends both sides of the incarnation? Will you have the Marian fiat of his mother? Uh, that moment of that moment of receptivity, that moment of uh, willingness to respond to God's call. Book ending. Book ending. The incarnation at the beginning and then at the end of the incarnation you have the ascension to the father so it's kind of interesting that femininity and masculinity sort of book in both sides of the incarnation Um, Mm -hmm. so you know those are paternal roles mother and father but they're not divested of genderedness so for this whole story or this whole event that we call the incarnation having mother and father at the beginning of the end uh, and that's what we call the word of God so uh, from the descent of God into the created order to the ascent of human flesh uh, into the divine order if you want to call it that that's what we affirm as, as our precedent, our model for those of us who are on this side of history we, we look back at the incarnation as our precedent I guess and for those who were always looking forward to the incarnation through you know some sort of Jewish hope or whatever, what have you? You know that was—that's what they look forward. And so, I, when we when we talk about the Word of God, we're always talking about what underlies existence. I guess. I mean, I don't know how you would word that, or if you would agree with that. But it's mm-hmm. the model or the blueprint of what's going on in this universe um, is how I take it when I see it as the Word of God.
0: Yeah, logos is, I mean, we may be missing it in the English, but clearly it is ultimate reality. It is, the, it is what underlies created reality. Uh, that in him, the logos, all things hold together. I mean, if you want to go with science, that in some way we don't know why things hold together. Uh, physics doesn't have an ultimate explanation with Big Bang cosmology. Uh, with high energy physics and so uh not not in any way to to displace science with some sort of but but to say that uh the, the logos is then uh ultimate reality uh in a in a very literal uh sense of the term
1: yeah, so there's no event or you know there's no aspect of the incarnation that is meaningless at that point. I mean, there's no part or portion of it that's just arbitrary, you know. And so I see how genderness and sexuality fit into that. Um, In as much as they're part of that event, you know, they have some sort of specific meaning, I guess, or they have something to say. Mm-hmm. I, I would just put it that way. Yeah. So for me, that's...
0: And it is, it's always... It's a hard concept because even in the New Testament, uh, in Ephesians, Paul says that, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. He's quoting Genesis, and the two shall become one, and I'm talking about Christ Mm -hmm. and church. And so in some way, Paul, Paul is using genderedness in a way that he does not use any of the other slave, free, you know, Jew, Greek, all of those things we can understand that uh they may in fact you know what is a what is a slave well that's completely a cultural construct but in some way genderedness is not simply that yeah,
1: yeah and so in the context of the incarnation you know the consideration of gender role it's it's a valuable consideration so from the role of mary as female and mother even to the role of joseph um, you know the role of Joseph, Joseph who wasn't a father biologically, but was a father in practice. And then you come to the role of Jesus, as male and son, doing the will of the Father in heaven. And so, and all the examples that you laid out in in your blog on on the Gospel of John, you know, gender as it plays a role in the story of uh, or event of the incarnation, it's very, it, it seems very significant to the to the discussion of, of salvation. Uh, how are we
0: going to frame that? absolutely absolutely and in some way gender confusion and i don't mean this in, in the way that we're using it theologically in other words to make the mistake of sophia or to make the mistake of uh, a privileging of the masculine they're 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 both wrong that in some way there is this harmony there is this balance uh, in in genderedness, uh, that is the way that the message of the gospel comes to us, and so I think these guys are right. Hey, there's something wrong in the way we've often seen this, but then to privilege uh, the the feminine over and against the masculine, or in some way, well, no, actually, historically, that's the way this pendulum always swings, uh, and and Christianity is neither end of that pendulum.
1: I, I can't wait for the resolution. <laughs> right. Yeah, the second thing I was going to bring up, um, this is just something that has always just really been kind of a bizarre thing to me. But this this concept of of Jesus being being connected to creation by being called the Creator, and you know, from very very early on, he was he has been discussed as being the agent of creation, and to me that just what it speaks to is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, maybe, but it speaks to me that what's going on in the work of Christ is not detached from what was going on in the work of creation. It's not something separate. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we get this language of old old creation and new creation, but but uh, with Jesus, I think what he's presenting is, is, is maybe a, a new way within the old um and so for me looking at the way that the world has the way that the world functions you have this emergent order where male and female and sexuality emerged you know as a sort of symbiotic relationship out of symbiotic relationship you know scientists don't know precisely how male and female may have evolved or anything but but of course it was some sort of symbiotic relationship that that brought them uh, that that emerged and so what I see there is just what was going on in, in this world in which that sort of thing emerged is not detached from what was going on with Christ and so
0: as you were saying earlier
1: where masculinity and and femininity, the male and the female they actually, they mean something in, in an ex nihilo type uh, of creation uh, you know, they were actually designated to be something,
0: something specific. So, yeah, no, I think that's key. That's uh, that was Carl Bart. You know, Carl Bart uh, goes through, and as usual, Bart writes more on anything you know, he, uh, uh, on the Genesis three than anybody. But also, then on the creation of the woman, he talks about when Adam, you know, was uh, went to sleep, and then the the rib was taken out of his side. But here, then, is the key moment in all of human history. Here is the key moment in, you know, here is the proleptic birth of the church. Here is uh, the fullness of creation. You know, obviously, when man was alone, God says this is not good. There's the creation of woman, and Bart's point is yes, but that is already... A foreshadowing of Christ and the Church, so that uh, and and male and female is involved in that, and so to distort it or to to in some way pervert it is to to miss. I, I think you've hit upon a key thing: the creation. I mean, we're uh, once you have Christ as creator, uh, that this sets everything in its proper place. Uh, that we're no longer dealing with a cosmos, a closed cosmos uh, but we are encountering in creation the trinity itself and once you've said trinity, you've said a plurality of persons and our person our participation in the trinity is then through a plurality of persons, male and female yeah
1: and I I just think that we need to kind of caution or be hesitant um, as far as just giving ourselves license to put aside gender roles, especially as they're described as occurring in the, in the Gospels, because looking at the full scope of the Incarnation, you know, there's no single act, there's no single moment that trumps another moment, soteriologically speaking, and so it's just one grand unfolding of the Word of God, and both masculinity and femininity share sure in that unfolding.
0: Let me, uh, let me announce your... Brett is, uh, has written a blog, and we'll put, we'll put the blog and this podcast out uh, hopefully within the same week. But uh, Brett, it's been a real joy talking to you. Pleasure's it's been great. my Paul. I appreciate it. 14 Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative, biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information
1: about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website
0: at forgingplowshares.org.